Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, audience and listeners. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth through Value at Real Estate Investing. Last week, we had Ivan Barrett, which owns almost 3,000 units, almost $300 million in assets. And he's doing a lot of deals in the Midwest cities and the states. Today, we have Reed Gosens from Wildhorn Capital. Reed owns Reed with his partner, uh, Andrew Campbell, who's also, they own like almost 1,800 units valued at $250 million. And they've been doing for almost four and a half years. Hey, Reed, welcome to the show. G'day, James. Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks for coming. I mean, I, I was on your show like a like, few years back and, you know, it's great to have you back here. And uh, I know you guys are doing a lot of deals in Central Texas, like where, mm-hmm. you know, my, where my backyard is. I also do Austin and San Antonio, so it's going to be a good discussion on what yes. do we see in the market, right? So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So did I miss out something in your introduction? No, not at all. You, you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have heard my story. Uh, Australian guy, you know, moved, moved to the United States back in 2012. My background's in structural engineering. Uh, I moved here to be an expat and just to live in New York City. And, you know, all, the, all these years, eight, eight, nine, sorry, eight, seven, eight years later, I, I, you know, I found financial freedom through investing in U.S. real estate. And I, I moved here with little funds, no established network. And my whole, my whole shtick is that if I can move here uh, halfway across the world and, and make it happen, then, then so can the average American sitting, you know, so, so get off the fence and start investing in real estate because it truly is the, you know, in terms of the, the Western countries, it's the premium in terms of Western countries for, for yield and commercial real estate. And we can get into that in a minute. But um, yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really my background. So, yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. I think sometimes people who have never lived outside of the US knows how much you can achieve in the US, right? Uh, yes. Your own sweat equity, right? You can really work hard and come up in life. And they have to really go outside and see how difficult is it to come up. You can work day in, day out, and you can work 24 or 7, you know, for seven days. You know, there's always a limit on your, on your progress, right? Exactly. Exactly. No, hundred <laughs> percent. So let's go back to uh, the market that uh, you guys are focusing, right? Austin mm-hmm. and San Antonio, right? So why did you choose these two markets? Yeah. So uh, historically, originally back in four and a half years ago, we chose Central Texas. I chose Central Texas as uh, it had moderate cap rates compared to, I live in Los Angeles, California. I live on the coast, uh, very compressed cap rates, looking for something with a little bit more moderate cap rates. Uh, at the time, um, I was, you know, co-GP'd a couple of deals with some pre-existing partners. I had my, my systems under, you know, from underwriting to deal sourcing, I, I sort of had that down pat. But what I didn't have down pat was a, a business partner, Boots on the Ground. And that's where I met Andrew Campbell. And we formed a partnership. He, you know, I was getting involved in, I was underwriting deals in Dallas, in San Antonio, not in Austin as yet. It, it, you know, that will morph into that in a little bit. But in the beginning, it was just like underwriting small deals, you know, between 50 and 100 units. Um, but, but what I was missing was the, the boots on the ground, the broker relationships. And so uh, what I needed was a partner like Andrew, who, who was there, who was in the thick of it, who could go and, um, you know, hang around the hoop and, and, and bug brokers while, while I sort of underwrote deals and did sort of the more the back end operational stuff. And we formed a partnership um, back in 2007, 15, I think mm-hmm. it is. And, um, 
Yeah, the rest is sort of history. We we underwrote a lot of deals in the beginning. We had, we you know people took a bet on us in terms of you know brokers taking a bet on us, and then we got that first deal done, and that morphed too quickly into second deal, third, fourth, fifth. You know, now we're at at eight, eight, and now going on nine deals. So um, it really came. It stemmed from the fact that I was needing to um, get get a business partner who who could take the workload, some of the workload off me, um, and do something that I had a skill set that I didn't have, which was boots on the ground, access to brokers. Uh, access to deals and walking assets and and you know i really focused on the operational side on the back end so yeah so can you give some advice to our listeners i mean i know you say you needed boots on the ground i mean i'm trying to help some of our listeners sure. who are trying to do like what you're trying to do right you are in california you have a partner here in austin texas and the, how did the discovery of that partners and boot in the ground because it's not like i find a guy in austin and i'm good with it, with it right yeah no that's there must be some some qualities <clears throat> in him Yes. And yes. how did you assess that? I well, can tell on Andrew about this podcast as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if Andrew's listening in. No, well, so let, let, let's just rewind the clock. I, I'd, I'd been doing deals prior to meeting Andrew um, okay. when I was living in New York City when I first moved to LA. As I first moved to the United States, I, did, I flipped a few houses in Philadelphia and I had a business partner on that. And, and it was sort of a JV more than a business partnership. Um, I had people tell me that that particular person, not to be named, um, wasn't the best partner to work with. You know, he was unorganized and blah, blah, blah. And looking back on it, he kind of was and it didn't go that great. Uh, well, I'm no longer in business with that gentleman, but it was, it was a, I, I tell you that story because it's a learning curve, right? My first flip deal in Philadelphia didn't go very well. Um, and, and, but w- between him and I, the, the old business partner, we were able to get the deal over the line. We didn't lose any investors' money. And, and, you know, we then parted ways after that because we just realized we wanted different things in life. Um, but I say that because, when you're looking for a partner, you need to understand that there's going to be sometimes you're going to get into partnerships that may not necessarily jive um, because you're hungry to get deals done and you're hungry to get the business off the ground. But when, you, when you're first getting started, the thing that attracted me to Andrew uh, and, and, what I, what, and what I what he attracted to me was we were both, uh, we had skill sets that complemented each other. And I think that's the most important thing is the skill sets to, to complement each other because if you don't have those skill sets, then what's the point in actually doing, um, you know, you don't want to be working on the same thing. So I saw in him that he had a skill set that, that I didn't have and he saw in me a skill set that I didn't have. Complementary skill sets are really, really important. Um, also, just the, the fact that we both of, I, both of us wanted to, to grind. Like we, we were not afraid to roll up the sleeves and work hard. At the time when I met Andrew, he was working a full-time job. I was working a full-time job. We were hustling on the weekends. He had kids. I don't, I don't have kids as yet, but you know, he, he had all these other external factors. And, and so did I, you know, in terms of you know, um, uh, my mum was sick in Australia. Um, all this stuff was happening. And, and really, but we still knew that our North Star was to get financially free and create a business. And, and years later, we've, we've achieved that, which is, which is awesome. But the, the, when it boils down to it is we are business partners first and friends second. Um, now, I, I view Andrew as one of, my, one of my best, better friends now, but that's because we came through business partnership, right? Andrew also runs a different crowd than I do. I, you know, he's very much in the, you know, play golf and sort of stuff where I'm more of the uh, go surfing. You know, if you're watching this video, I've got a surfboard in the background. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very different yin to, to his yang. And, and, and we did a presentation last week at the best ever conference in, in Denver, oh, sorry, in uh, Keystone, Colorado. And, w- and what we were talking about were, was that real estate is the art and science, right? Uh, r- real estate forms, there's an art and there's a science of it. Andrew is very much the art and I'm the science behind it. So it's, it's the, the marriage of two different polar opposites that can really make a, a successful business and, and partnership work. So 
all that type of stuff is like you have to assess what you're good at, right? You have to assess your pros and your and your and what you're bad at and what you don't want to do. But you have to also realize that being in this game of real estate investment, you know, whatever the, whatever size you do, whether it be from flipping houses all the way through to doing large commercial multifamilies, like like what what we do, James, you and I, you have to realize that you need part, you need a team, and and having a, a someone, a co-pilot, a co-captain sitting right next to you, bearing taking some of the responsibilities and, 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 and taking some of the pressure off you as an as a entrepreneur and business owner, it's so vital. It's paramount to the growth because you will 10x your growth by bringing on a partner, a, you know, a partner that works and, and is harmonious with. Then you know, looking back, I, I wouldn't be sitting here today talking about 1,800 units and two, a quarter billion dollars worth of assets under management if I didn't go out and find Andrew. Vice versa, he wouldn't also be sitting in the same position if he didn't find me. So it's 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 a combination of seeing what you're good at, what you lack at, and seeing if you can find someone that can that can meet you halfway in the middle, and that you can get on, and and you have those similar um, goals and visions, but you also can work hard uh, to to achieve a goal. Got it, got it. When you guys, I mean, I'm trying to go into this partnership because I think a lot of people are trying to get a partner to partner with them, and they just need to know. How does a successful partner, you know, looked like when you were like, because you guys are very successful in partnering up. So how was that discussion? I mean, uh, so who, somebody brought up, okay, let's, why not we partner up, right? So, yep. and yep. what was the other person say? Because sometimes people say, oh, well, I'm not sure yet, right? So, because <laughs> it's not going to be like, why, let's partner up and everybody's going to be partnering. It's well, not, look, look, look. was that dance? Yeah, happened? look. Let's not beat around the bush here. It is like dating. If anyone's been out in the dating world, okay. it's the same freaking thing. You're, so you guys went out on a date a few times, I guess. Yeah, exactly. You've got to go <laughs> okay. date a few people before you get into bed with someone. Excuse the crass, but you know, yeah, it's, yeah, kind of, it's true. Like it's you. It's it's a it's a interpersonal relationship. It's a it's a feeling you get from the other person that hey, this person could work. Now got it, it could have it. it could have gone badly. But it's the same, you know. It's when you do go out and date, you you get a you get an energy from that person. You 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 can feel that they want the same thing that you want. You have conversations. You get to know one another. It, did, it wasn't just like, hey, let's partner. It was over a period of you know three to six months that Andrew flew out here to 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 to, to LA with his wife. He got to meet my wife. Um, I flew out to Austin. I met his kids. It was a it was a it was a courtship. You know, similar to how you would date someone. Um, and through that, you were able to have candid conversations about where we're headed, the goals, um, and and really align with you know he'd lost he'd lost his mum through cancer, I'd lost my mum through cancer, so we had some, some very much some things that had aligned. Um, plus, also the the fact that we 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 could hustle and we could grind and graft hard, you know that was a really that was a plus, and we had complementary skill sets. It sort of was ticking a lot of boxes. Um, but at the end of the day. Our first couple of deals, we were very much Reed and Andrew. You know, it was it was RSN, which was my old company, and and Wildhorn, and and we were t- we took down the first couple of deals, really as individuals. You know, but 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 you know, using our entities to partner in case something did go wrong, and we can just say, okay, look, we'll, we'll sell these deals and we'll, we'll go our separate ways. Over time, that morphs into one banner, you know, one one marketing arm, and that's where RSN falls away, and and we just we went with Wildhorn because he was he was based in Texas. Um, and we became more of a partnership. Um, and, and look, I'll tell you here today, um, James, is that partnerships also don't last forever. You know, Andrew and I have had conversations. I'm from Australia originally. I know that in in ten years' time, when I'm 43 years of age, I want to have some investments back in Australia. Andrew may not be involved in those deals in there, but but for right now, we're looking to double the portfolio in the next three to five years, and we're looking to make some successful exits. 
Um, and that's all I can promise, right? I, I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years because the biggest thing for me, James, is that I picked up the book Rich Dad Porto back in 2009 and it's, you know, it's, we just finished 2019. So a decade later, I'm sitting on a, on a podcast with you telling you about my, my assets under management. I had no freaking idea that I would be doing that 10 years later. And so what the, the message is, don't plan your 10 years ahead. Work right now. What's in front of you? See what doors open, which is you know, Andrew and I are having a really successful relation, uh, uh, partnership and relationship and we're going to double our portfolio in the next three to five years. And just be okay with that. And don't worry. The, the, the future will figure itself out from there. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. You, you, you can underestimate what you can achieve. Uh, you, you can overestimate what you can achieve in a year, but you can underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. And so my whole story, my whole you know, me, um, message to people out there is when you do look at partnerships, understand that they morph over time. They, they, they may come together for five, 10 years and they might, might go apart and that's okay. That's how businesses evolve. That's how entrepreneurs evolve as, as human beings. And, and, you, and you have to also be, uh, you know, it's not sacrifice, but, but, but surrender to that and understand that that might change in, in, in the future. And that's okay, right? Because as you know, you know, multifamily isn't very hot right now. It's everyone, every man and their dog is in there. So you might have to pivot and change a different, you know, business structure. So, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's really good conversation there, right? But some of the key nuggets I want to recap, right? I mean, you, a lot of people talk about partnership is always complementary skills, but it's not that, right? I mean, that's one thing. That's just one part of it. But there's a lot of core values. I mean, you and your partner have a lot of core value similarity and take time to discover that, right? I mean, right. based on your family stories and based on your goal, because you can find a partner with complementary skills, but he may not want to hustle, right? He may not have the goal that you want. There are certain aspirations that anyone who's hungry for achievement want it. And, you know, he expects the same on this partner. And I'm sure you guys exactly. have found that. So let's go back to the market that you have sure. chosen in yep. Central Texas. I'm sure people have learned it. It's not only complementary skills, a lot more than that. And you guys have to discover it. And, and one more thing I want to recap on the partnership is the, uh, the way that you guys set up your company, right? Two of you guys, I remember RSN Capital Group, if I'm not mistaken, yep. and Andrew has his own and you guys kept it separate, which is really good. That's how I would recommend anybody want to do partnership. Keep the entity separate, put it into one LLC and buy a deal. And in case something doesn't work out, you can always split it out, right? So exactly. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people where on day one itself, they create one LLC and both partners are in one LLC and they can, can never split up when something happens. Yes. Awesome. So let's go to the market. Uh, you, I mean, you chose Central Texas. You found your first deal. Did you find the deal first, or did you analyze the submarket first? All, all of the above. I was looking in Dallas. I was looking in San Antonio. I was just really seeing what I was underwriting a lot of deals. You know, I'm, I'm, before that first deal came to me back in 2015. Uh, sorry, uh, 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 leading up to that point was uh, we were underwriting. Uh, when Andrew and I met, then we went and under, underwrote like a hundred deals before we got that first deal uh, under contract. Um, but but if I take a if I look at you know the, the why behind Central Texas, um, you also got to understand where I come from. You you can't. And I I made this speech uh, on last Thursday night at the best ever conference. I come from a country in Australia, and, and you have to put it in context, right? Because part of my special power, part of my superhero, part of my special source that I bring to Wildhorn Capital is my international perspective. Um, and, and, and the reason that is so special is so I can look at things through a different lens. So what do I mean by that? Well, if I compare just Australia and America, right? Australia and America, you know, the land of ass I'm talking about, excluding, just let's ignore Alaska for a second, but just those two land masses, they're roughly the same size, give or take. Um, However, in Australia, we can only inhabit about 
18 to 19% of our land because the rest is a desert. And so everything is for, everyone is forced to major cities. Everyone's forced to the coast. And so we have, um, and we only have a small population. We only have 24 million people. Unlike here in America, where you can inhabit north to south, east to west, and you have 300 million people. So we don't even have one-tenth. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because I grew up in, a, in an area where if you double your, you know, we have a high demand but low supply uh, environment, right? What does that mean when you have a high demand, low supply environment? You have low cap rates. Mm-hmm. In, in major markets in Australia, in major markets in other Western countries, commercial real estate cap rates are sub 3%. You look at, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm going to spout off some big names, but you look at London, you look at Sydney, you look at Hong Kong, you look at Singapore. Office space, and then that's the, probably the, the only thing that is a, is a, a common thread between all of them. Office space in those markets are sub 3%, maybe even 2%, where you can buy office space in New York City or LA or now even Austin for four cap, right? And so when you've got this international perspective of like, wow, I've come from a market where historically there's been low cap rates for decades because of supply and demand. And I see the same thing happening in central Texas, where the GDP of all of Texas is greater than that of all of Australia. Well, I'm doubling down on that in that market because a place like Austin, Texas has now transitioned from a supply, uh, sort of from a boom bust town into a tier one market like Los Angeles, like Sydney, like Singapore, like London, where dirt is trading for as much or even more as the coastal market. So when you have high demand, like you do in Austin, low supply, coupled with a very high barrier to entry for new product, which means buying dirt, getting it approved, construction, doubling down on existing assets in a market like Austin means that coming the recession in the next couple of years, you'll be able to ride that out because you have a high demand and low supply. I also come from a country where we have not had a recession in over 27 years because of now obviously physical policy, the way in which we invest our pension funds is a lot deeper than that. But I, but again, I say this all to give you the, t- the, the lens that I look through when I'm looking at different assets. One other thing that not, not many people know, multifamily does not exist in Australia because of the lack of financing vehicles. We only have 27, 25 million people. We have four or five major banks. Those four or five major banks do not lend money on a new apartment construction unless you've pre-sold X amount of units, which is a condo market. So they they lend on a build to sell, not a build to own, right? And so when you don't have those sophisticated financing vehicles like you do here in these states, you know, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, interest only for 10 years, amortized over 30 years, the fact that multifamily doesn't even exist in Australia when I first moved here, coupled with population, GDP growth, seeing markets transition from um, a supply, a boom bust into a high demand, low supply environment, seeing markets transition into it's a high barrier to entry for new product. All those things add to why I would double down in a market like that to help me ride out the next 10 years. Because remember, James, the last 10 years that we've just had since 2009 has been the best 10 years for multifamily probably in history. Right, we're not going to see the same. The next ten years are not going to be the same. And so, as an investor, as an operator, you need to look for different for, for markets where there's true growth. Now, you look, you compare Austin to New York and San Francisco and LA. Money is still being in, invested in those markets because of the demand. So, people still invest in these coastal markets because of the long term 
gains they're going to make. And a lot of people have made a lot of money in a short-term period over the last 10 years. And I think that's going to be the same trend moving forward. And that is completely incorrect. And if you look at, if you, if you think that's going to happen, you need to go invest in something else <laughs> in my, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's crazy, right? On how much the tide has gone up over the past 10 years and everybody think multifamily is the same, right? It's commodity right. now, but it's not. At some point, the wage growth is going to hit some limitation, right? And exactly. that's where you're going to have a problem, right? So you have to be really ready. That's what you said. That's, that's really awesome. And the other thing about Austin, uh, in uh, other than coastal cities or a lot of coastal cities are getting rent control, whereas Austin, I don't think so will ever get a rent control, even though it's more of a liberal city, but it's in the it's yeah, yeah. Look, even if that was to happen, people still make a lot of money in in places like LA, New York, San Francisco. They're making a lot of money, and it's because of the value of the dirt. And everyone's got to realize you buy real estate for for the land value, and now you know that that is what is intrinsically is going to grow over time. The fact that when I first moved to this country, I noticed that land. At least in LA and New York and San Francisco, land is 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 key, right? It's 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 what holds the value. The the asset depreciates over time. But in Central Texas, the the asset was more is more valuable than the land. That's that's slowly starting to change, right? As as demographics change, as people move, as population grows, as GDP grows, all that sort of stuff in terms of supply and demand, what I just spoke about, that then means that dirt is worth more. Right, dirt is where the value is, and if you hold it for a long period of time, I'm talking seven to ten years, you're going to do just fine. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I was happy to know that. You know, I'm not sure whether you know or not. Tim Ferriss moved to Austin like uh, I think a few yep. months ago, a few years ago. I, I need to find out where is he. I mean, <laughs> I listen to his podcast. You know, his podcast is awesome, right? So, yeah. so let's go to underwriting, uh, Reid. Uh, so let's say you get a deal today, right? Uh, what are the things? How? how what's? What are the sniff tests that you do? You know, before you look into the second level uh, details. Yeah, look, sniff test is is it's a hard thing for a sniff test these days because there's so much more to the story and goes back to the art and the science of underwriting. Back in the day, five, six years ago, yeah, you can do a back of the napkin and 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 does it make sense? Yeah, does it not make sense? No. Because you had so much, you had you had a, a cap rate that was moderate and you had an interest rate that, you know, was a delta of maybe two hundred basis points you could get cash flow. Today it's not it's not like that. That 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 spread between interest rates and cap rates have compressed, right? So cash flow becomes harder to achieve. Thus, you need to understand the story, and that's where the the, the art comes into it, not necessarily the science. So, I still look for a spread between ca- going in cap rates or a stabilized cap rate and and uh, and interest rates. I want to make sure there's at least uh, hundred basis points in there, and I'll, and that's growing over time. And when I model it out over five or seven years, that that continues to grow. Um, but I also want to see now I'm looking at deals where there's other opportunities. So when I say other opportunities, uh, we're about to buy a deal uh, south of the river in, in Austin, Texas. It's the lowest cash flowing deal we've ever put out. And we've, we've got, we've, we've, we're oversubscribed to that deal because of the location. Now, what you don't know, if you looked at just at the numbers on that thing, you think, oh God, it's a really low cap rate. But you don't realize that if you don't know the story behind what's happening in that area, 600 units are going to be completely demolished and taken offline in the next 24 months. So that's, do you think that's going to have an impact on our rents and, and, and the, for, you know, the, the occupancy? Of course it is. But how do you underwrite to that, right? You can't. You've got to underwrite as if it's a value-add multifamily. Um, this is where the story comes in and where you need to go bigger than the sniff test because this is what market we're in. Also, we, need, we know that this land that we're buying, we're buying 12 acres where the density could be doubled on this, on this, on this plot of land. It could go from 284 units. We could go and put 500 units on it. Now, whether you go and execute on that is a different thing, but that could be a, a, an exit option for someone in the future for a developer to buy if all these you know, investments in south of the river there near, the, um, near Oracle 
is is to come to fruition, then again, I'm looking, I'm seeing very similar trends as if I'm looking at an LA or a New York market. Um, so these are all the things that I look at now and you have to go deeper. You have to do more than just a sniff test because those days, we're not in those days anymore. We're in a different market and we have to spend time. I have four analysts that work for me and they spend a minimum of three to four hours on any one deal. Now, Andrew is is the guy that makes sure he filters the deals that we see. But if he thinks that there's a bit of a something a little bit more to sniff at and has got a little bit more uh, art to it than the science, then we will dive deep into it and we'll spend uh, three or four hours underwriting it. And that's just and it still may not work at that point, but you know we've we've dealt, we've gone and you know exhausted all, all all avenues to make sure that we've have made sure that it isn't a deal that works for us. So yeah. so yeah. So what you're saying is you have stopped looking for the normal cash flowing value add deal. You're looking more of the path of progress and you know the story behind the behind the deal you know, to to exactly. forecast a future uh, appreciation. I would say right exactly um, or future potential in that deal. I guess yeah, right? future potential because adding your, your whole podcast name is called. Uh, Increasing your wealth through adding value, right? Correct. You may add value by entitling the land to have a better, bigger density on it. That is add, that's adding value. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. You know, adding to add value, absolutely. Yeah, any way to add value. Where we're historically it's just been, oh, well, we'll put lipstick on a pig and hopefully it looks good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, that, that's that's gone, right? That, that, those, those, not, there's still those markets out there. There's still those deals out there. You can still find them, and, and don't get me wrong. But when you become more sophisticated, when you become more advanced in your underwriting, when you become more experienced you start seeing different trends and why the big guys and let's not be let's not beat around the bush here i've worked for big developers in la and new york and they don't have podcasts they don't have books but they own half of beverly hills and they own half of mm-hmm. beverly hills for a reason Absolutely. they the, where the big dogs are they're still buying these these pieces of dirt they're still buying these trophy assets and putting and they're still selling to reits they're still selling to insurance companies and making a lot of money and you've never even heard of their name so i've come from that background and that is where exactly how my mind shift, my mindset has now shifted to to start understanding the pennies dropped. There. Ah, I now know why those guys do what they do is because of the value in which the supply and demand curve. We go back to that a lot. That demand is high and supply is low. So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, look at things differently, right? And and I met someone the other day who was buying land on a. It's called a submerged land, land under the lake. And she was saying, "Oh, I sell that." I say, "How do you sell that?" Right. So there's a it's a very interesting story on when a boat comes, you know, you need to dock, you know, on yep. your land, but even though it's under the water, but you, they can still sell it. Right. So, you know, yep. so you have to mix with different kind of people, go out of this the normal value add, I would say, right? Where you exactly. To see that kind of things, right? So, yeah, it's it's absolutely, you know, you know, it makes sense on um, to do creative stuff, right? As long as you're doing it in the right market, right? You cannot be it, it, it all comes down, it does all come down to market and it does all come down to, just reacting to the market, right? You you got to react, and you got to as as entrepreneurs, we're riding the wave. The wave of, of change is ever ever evolving, and so we have to be ready to look at things through a different lens. To not be ignorant of other options that you can do to your property, because you know it's just about, it's about being creative. Be creative with the piece of land, and you can figure out many different ways in which you can make money from it. Okay. So it's just understanding that rather than just plugging and playing and. You know, buying at a six cap and getting interest rates at a four cap and having all this cash flow and yada yada yada. That's there's still those deals out there. You've just got to find they're a lot harder to find, and thus you need to be a little bit more educated in terms of the value that you bring to your asset. Now coming into a uh, you know a new a new economy that we're we're in. So, do you see some of the investors who are used to the you know getting cash flow and doing a value add on the rent and all that? Do you see some of the 
investors dropped out? I mean, they don't buy into the idea or they, you think a lot more people buy into the idea or you just finding different people buying into the ideas? Well, last year we, we rolled out and we were the first ones in the industry to do it in the multifamily industry, at least in our little circle, the, the, the AB structure. That's, we brought that to market first. We, we closed on a deal. And the, and the way we do that is by offering 25% of the equity has 10% preferred return paid current, right? And that means that you can satisfy those cash flow customers or investors with that class A um, bucket. Class B bucket, they, they have an accruing pref, right? But they get all the back end. They, they get 70% of the back end. So they're looking for that equity multiple. And we can then, we, we've then divided our investor group into two pots. We can now see who wants what. Um, but what it does mean is that we can, if we buy a deal that cash flows 2% out of the gate, which is pretty much most, you know, a lot of deals only cash flow very little out of the gate. You can pay that 10% pref straight up to 25% of the equity. If you have 25% of the equity not participating in the back end, then that juices the IRR to the class B. All these things we are doing in terms of structure because we are reacting to the market and because we're being, we're not just blindly going along and not getting any deals done because, oh, it doesn't work like it used to work. Well, we're changing the way in which we structure our deals. We're changing the way in which we underwrite our deals to back into making sure we're, you know, appeasing our investors. They have some cash flow uh, bucket, and they've also got the the equity appreciation bucket. And and and, and having honest, candid conversations with our investors that, hey, if you give me a hundred thousand bucks, does it really matter if I give you a seven grand every year? Is that going to change your life, or does it? Or does it more matter that you give me a hundred thousand dollars, and in five or six years' time, I give you back two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Is that more valuable to you? And when you have those conversations with those investors, they start thinking differently. Right. And people that they, you know, they think, oh, the pref isn't being met. Oh, that means it's a bad deal. No, it just means that the deal's getting out of the gate at a different velocity to what another deal is. And so looking at the long term play, real estate, James, is a long term play. It's not a get rich quick. And that's why I say a lot of people have had done have done so well with their money in the last 10 years. They've doubled, tripled their money in three to five years. And they think that's still the norm. Well, it's not. And that's where you have to readjust your expectations. And that's where, again, my international perspective, where I've come from a country where if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing just fine. The long-term play is what real estate is. And people sometimes get to lose that vision of what long-term means. They think long-term is three years, <laughs> which yeah. is not tough. So, yeah. That's true. Sometimes people are just so used to what they make in the past uh, 2012 to what, 2017 or 18, yep. right? A lot of exactly. Keep on looking for the same yield, and you know that kind of deal is no more existing, right? And that's investors appreciate the being candid, right? Investors appreciate having those open and honest conversations. And why would you take a lower return? Well, you're taking a lower return because it's risk adjusted. You're not investing in a tertiary market or a secondary market where it may get you know really rattled if they have another recession. You're investing in uh, it's low risk, lower risk, and thus you have to adjust your expectations when you go and invest in, in a market like Austin with lower risk, um, lower margins. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Risk adjusted return is something that a lot of people don't understand, right? I mean, the, if you if you're making six percent in an awesome market compared to you making a, a projected eight percent, everything is projection, right? In the beginning, right. Right? before you invest, everything is projection, right? Someone tell you they're going to give you a 20% IRR in a tertiary market compared to someone's going to give you a 10% IRR in a solid market, that 10% is actually much better than the 20% because the risk is lower. The risk is lower. But also you look at like what the, if you want no risk, go put your money in a treasury, in t- 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 10 year treasury. That's what, what 1.32%. If you want zero risk, go do that. And if I'm offering you six or 7% return, I think I think I'd rather put my money, uh, place my money, you know, yeah. also backed by physical real estate where you can have all the tax appreciation, depreciation. It just it doesn't it doesn't. No other investment holds up, 
So obviously the stock market is doing very, very well, but you have to also compare apples to apples. And that is, you know, one is risk, two is volatility, three is tax, you know, tax depreciation, and four is access to your capital. And so all those things play into to effect when you think about real estate versus other ways in which you can make money uh, in this world. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I, I saw your the way you guys structure the class A and B where you have one person or class A is like flat 10% or a yep. certain percentage, right? I, I can't remember the number. No, it's it's the flat 10% one. and then that's flat 10%, but they but class A does not participate in the back end. And then you've got class B that has an accruing 7% pref um, and you, you catch up upon sale, but they get 70% of the back end and those investors are more focused on the equity multiple rather than the cash flow. And thus you, you're splitting the bucket, but you still have you still offer them both, right? The investors can still have they can put some in A and some in B, but you limit the class A to 25% of the equity. So it helps you know reduce the IRR on the back end. And does the class A, the 10% get paid from day one itself? Correct. Yep. Okay. Okay. Whereas the class because, B, you have to wait until you the thing can do the math, right? So if you have a million dollar, um, uh, you have a million dollars of equity, 25% mm-hmm. of a million dollars of equity is $250,000. 10% of $250,000 is 25 grand, right? A year. Now, a million dollars in equity, that's probably going to buy you a $4 million property. Do you think a $4 million property could, could cash flow in any one year, 25 grand? I think it could. Yeah. So sure. that, that's, 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 where the, that's where the special source comes in because you're paying 10% on 25% of the equity. So thus, your cash flow out of the gate needs to, can be lower and you can still hit that 10% pref hurdle. So, yeah. so do you see the people, which one which one get filled up fast? I mean, I know one smaller, <laughs> yeah, yeah. smaller, Look, smaller pool, the other one's bigger, right? Well, so so we also have a higher barrier to entry on the class A. So we, we have a hundred thousand dollar minimum. And we have a lot of people obviously wanting class A. The the thing is we, we, we tend to see class A get filled up on the first deal, it got filled up really quickly. On the second deal, it was a little bit more equal. You know, here's the other thing: class A investors, if my deal and, and I'm, not, I'm not hiding anyone from it. It's just the truth. If my, they get paid first, right? So if I go and refi and I hold it for five years and I, just, I decide I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to um, sell, I'm actually going to refi. Well, I can refi and pay all my investors back, class A, all their money, and they're out of the deal, right? And I can, okay. replace, I can replace class A with cheaper, with, with cheaper debt, right? Because if I'm paying them 10% of their money and I can get debt at you know, 4%, then I've just essentially, you know, I've, I've taken them out of the deal. Now there's a risk there that they they're out, right? And and I have investors saying, well, you could just come along and do that. I was like, yes, I can. Um, that's part of you know real estate and, and debt and debt stacks, right? I can just replace as as the value of the asset grows, I can replace the debt, and I could potentially have a debt number that could take you all out of the of the deal. They've got to be okay with that, and that's that's a position. But they sit in a safer position. They sit just behind the debt. They don't sit in class B. Uh, they sit in class. Uh, they sit in, in class uh, class A. Got it. Got it. So looks like if you look at the class A has a lot more attractiveness to it, and uh, class compared to class B because the class A people get ten percent flat, I guess, right? Uh, well, yes and no. When you understand both, there's pros and cons for both. When I just explained the class A. They yes, they sit it and they have a ten percent pref, but they're capped at a, at a certain return, right? They got cannot it. earn any more than ten percent, right? Got it, got and it. so and you can buy them out at a. Refi, I can buy I them out at any stage, and if we we smack the deal out of the park and twenty percent IRRs, or, you know, I'm just they get no, they share none of that. They are got capped it, it. And it, because they want to sit in a safer position. That's mm. where class B. Yes, you're sitting behind class A. But you get all the profits, you know, we split all the profits, profit sharing at the end. And so, again, 
you have to understand capital stacks and you have to understand risk in, in, in relationship to capital stacks in order to really grasp your mind around um, the, the, the AB structure. It's pretty simple when once explained. Um, and I can show a diagram uh, if for any investors who, who might be interested in it. But again, it's just a different way of looking at it. And, and come, I come from the ground up construction world. I've built a lot of ground up multifamily. This is exactly how multifamily is constructed, uh, financed. You've got debt, you have a mes equity piece, you have equity, and then you have the GP. And it's it's all it's it's just capital stack um, math. So it's so a very 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 basic. Once you get your head wrapped around it, and probably yeah, a lot of people are scratching their heads, thinking, "Oh my god, what's he talking about?" No, no, it's uh, for me. It's pretty simple. I mean, I think it makes sense. Risk and uh, both uh, classes, right? And you take exactly. that risk. And and I've I've talked to I mean even in in my book about you know different investors want different things. Some people just want cash flow. They're happy yep. with ten percent flat cash flow. Some people really want the equity. I mean, it depends on their life cycle, right? Where they are in their life cycle, right? So if they want- And so so as an operator, I've got to continue offering that. And the way I've offered it in terms of how deals are now underwriting is that's how I've I've, I've split split the- uh, the, the baby from the bathwater, as they say, you know, I've, I've split it and, and made sure that I can, I can, uh, I can service both the type of investors who one wants cash flow, the other one wants long-term appreciation. So, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Great. So let's go to a more personal stuff. Uh, can you name like top three things that you think is your secret sauce to success? Oh, mate, <laughs> <laughs> that's a hard one. Uh, there's no, there's no secrets, right? Hard work is so. So let, let's talk about secrets. Hard work is so underestimated. I moved to this country. I didn't have a job. Uh, I was an engineer. I literally donned on a suit and I knocked on 50 different engineering joints, you know, engineering companies until I found a person to say yes. I don't, I'm not afraid of hard work. Am I lucky? Have I got a bit of luck in there? Sure. I'm lucky that I was born into a really awesome family that, you know, I come from a blue collar working background. I've got blue collar work ethic. I'm not afraid to roll up the sleeves and get my hands dirty. Um, I'm also afra- not afraid to back myself. I think that's another key to success is like, you've got to learn and you've got to be okay with betting on yourself. And I remember when I first took that plane from Australia, I quit my job at my well-paying job in Australia and I moved to the United States to give it a crack. As I say, you know, I was betting on myself. I was betting that I can figure this out. I might not have had the answers at that point, but I, was, I knew that I was resourceful enough to figure it out. And I have. And so... Those two things, there's a little bit of luck in there, but there's also hard work and learning to back yourself are really two important skill sets, life skill sets that, that people need to learn. Um, and I've developed that through going and backpacking around the world with you know, $2,000 in my pocket, you know, understanding the value of a dollar and stretching a dollar. You know, the biggest people ask me all the time, well, what advice could you give to a 20-year-old? Go backpacking. Go, go to a third world country. Go backpacking. For two years, come back, and then you'll figure it. You go, you go find yourself. You go, you go to the university of life, figure it out. Go understand a little bit of the street ways, and then come back and, and you'll you'll get started. Um, I think going out and widening your horizon, broadening, taking off the the blinkers, and experiencing other cultures, other ways of life, other how people live their lives, is all parts of learning. And why I think that I've been very lucky that I was able to travel. And I, I paid for all my own travel. I, I saved up all my own money. I was able to go out and do it and experience different cultures, take on their advice, take on that, you know, their, their, their wisdom and internalize it and spit it out and say, this is what I want to do with my life. So a couple of, couple of pieces of advice of success there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now I realize why people go backpacking. I never really understand, but you made it very clear, right? Uh, because you really like on the street, with a shoestring budget, and you're talking to different people. Just you're talking to normal people, right? You don't you have get you get a skill. I, I remember I'll tell you a story. I was in South America. This is ten years ago, and and I 
I had a rule. I was backpacking by myself. The most invigorating thing I've ever done in my entire life, James, is to backpack by myself. I had no one to answer to. I would meet someone at a hostel or a group of people and say, this is awesome. Let's go. But you get really bloody good at determining if you're going to be, you know, you only have 30 seconds to make an impression and you either, I'm going to either have a beer with you or I'm not going to have a beer with you. And it was very quick. Like you, you, you got that skill became very, very quick. I had a rule that when I was backpacking by myself, you know, if I go into a bar and I hadn't met someone within three drinks, I'd move to another bar. I never left that first bar because it was always about putting yourself out there, being vulnerable, talking to other backpackers and un- getting that interpersonal skills really sharpened and really honed in. And, and that's part of what, what, what you learn from backpacking. So, so yeah. No, it's very interesting. Yeah. And I, it's very interesting. That's that's uh, the perspective that you get when you go backpacking. Exactly. Let's go to another one more aspect of your life. Is there a proud moment in your life that you can never forget until the end? One oh, proud moment. Proud moment. Yes. You're really, really proud that you think, oh, I, I'm really proud of myself. I, I think the first, I think getting that first job in New York City, getting that first job, getting that visa, I was proud that that was, I, you know, I did it. Like that was the the coming to America story. In order to stay, I needed a visa, right? I needed a job. And so that proud me, if I got that job, it meant that that was that, you know, talk about doors opening. That was the first door that I could unlock. And that then meant there's a bunch of other doors behind it, but that meant I could stay and I could figure it out. And that was the first proud moment that I think I was, it was, you know, again, I, I was literally walking the pavements, knocking on doors because in 2012, you know, putting your resume out into the indeed.com or whatever just was useless. I needed to go knock on doors and, and, and say, Hey, here's my resume. I'm looking for a job. And a lot of people said no, but it takes that one. Yes. And that one, yes can change your life. So that was that one. Yes. For the job meant that I could stay in the United States. It meant I could continue the journey. So, so yeah. Got it. Got it. So one of the question from what's one of the passive investors is like, is there any advice that you would give to passive investors that's investing in syndicated uh, commercial real estate? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is you have to have an alignment of interest, right? You know, what is, do you, there's, there's, there's trust and transparency, but do you get on with the operator? Because the number one thing that, that passive investors want to invest in is they don't actually invest in the deal. The deal's sort of second, secondary, right? The first thing is the person who you're investing with. Who, who's your partner that you're going to go into this deal with? Who's the operator who's going to take control of this asset? And if you don't like them or you don't have that energy that I, talk, I spoke about earlier, then don't invest with them, you know. And that's it's very easy to figure out who you like and who you don't like. And and again, this is a world of of it's, life is short, and you want to do business with people who you like and you want to be with, right? That's the whole point of why we do this business. And it, and it goes both ways, both from the operation point of view, my my point of view, and also from the passive investor point of view. You got to it, we're all in this business to make money. Let's do it with people that we like. So <laughs> I think that's that's, that's sort of absolutely short of it. So, Reed, why don't you tell our audience and listeners uh, how to get hold of you and how to be in yep. contact with you? Sure. So, I've got um, for those listeners who like to read, I've got two books. Um, I've got the Investing in the US, which is uh, on Amazon. It was a best bestseller last year. You can find that, uh, and I've also got Ten Thousand Miles to the American Dream: Our Story of Financial Freedom. So, those two books are on my website or on Amazon. You can go to ReedGoosens That's www.reed.reed g-o-o-s-s-e-n-s.com everything's up there my podcast up there my blogs are up there if you have any questions you can click on little links and stuff and i always offer people or listeners if they're coming through la and they want to meet up for a beer or lunch or just say good day i'm always interested to to meet up and um and, and talk shop 
you just got to email me at info that's info at reedgoosens.com and just give me enough heads up and let me know when you're coming through town. Awesome, Reed. Welcome and thanks for coming in to the show and uh, I'm sure you added tons of value. Thank you very much, mate. <laughs> All right. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.